0: You are listening to Pognosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Corita Anderson, the managing editor at Fierce Healthcare, filling in for our producer, Teresa Carey. Every week, journalists from Fierce Healthcare dive into some of the industry's biggest topics. We talk with experts about what's important now so you can prepare for the future. In a little bit, we'll talk about why we have skyrocketing drug prices in the U.S. and what can be done about it. But first up, let's talk about virtual care. It's no secret that the pandemic led to an explosion in telehealth use. And even now, as we start going back into the doctor's office, more people are still using telehealth than ever would have before the pandemic. Insurers and plan sponsors are looking to cash in on this shift to virtual care. They're designing plans that put virtual services at the center. Major payers are creating their own resources or using services like Teladoc to build these plans. The challenge then becomes striking the balance between virtual care and traditional brick and mortar services. Senior editor Paige Minamaya sat down with Rob Bressler He is the Senior Vice President and General Manager of Primary 360 at Teladoc. They talked about this balancing act and if virtual first is here to stay. Here they are.
1: Hi, Rob. Thanks so much for joining us. Telehealth's rise is one of the big stories coming out of COVID-19, and the huge increases in its use thanks to the pandemic are in stark contrast to the industry's tepid response to virtual care even five years ago. Insurers are looking to get on the action through virtual first plan designs. To kickstart our conversation, Rob, can you give us an idea of what a plan like this looks like from the member's perspective?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, a great place to uh, to start. So we've gone through an evolution here, in so far as uptake and, and understanding of, of virtual care, and really what it can mean um, for an individual and for access, and frankly for the provider as well. And there's been some really exciting, you know, developments in the past year or two, namely around that benefit design and, and what it looks like. So. In some of our partnerships, for example, you'll see, um, that the products that we have on the exchange are a zero dollar copay for all things virtual. So not just the actual virtual visit, but in the instance of a referral to a specialist or, or a referral for certain, you know, TRA imaging and those types of activities. So as we, you know, see consumer interest and engagement with these plans continue to, to rise and really excitement around that continue to rise, we're also really encouraged to see, you know, carriers, plan sponsors, in place, you know, benefit designs um, that really encourage virtual first models at the same time, but also doing so in a way that's still connected, you know, to the to the in person on ground network by offering, uh, you know, uh, design incentives um, from that perspective as, as well.
1: As you mentioned, the interest in these plans is only growing, and we've seen pretty much all major insurers launch some kind of virtual first offering, several through partnerships with Teladoc and Primary Three Hundred and Sixty. Um, what is Teledoc's philosophy around virtual first care, and how has that evolved, especially coming out of covid?
2: I think you kind of have to think about it in two different dimensions, really at the the intersection of primary care and virtual first uh, models. They certainly go hand in hand, but there's some there's some differences, no doubt so let me touch on the the primary care piece and then sort of the overlay with virtual first models themselves now I'll start by saying. You know, as it relates to our philosophy, the foundation of everything that we're doing in primary care really is a continuous and longitudinal relationship with a high-quality PCP and a care team wrapped around the, the consumer. You know, As it relates to our philosophy, that means we are targeting those who do not have a PCP relationship today, which we believe, incidentally, to be about 50% of the commercially insured population we know we have to make really considerable strides to change behavior because we're trying to influence an audience that for one reason or the other has said, I don't need primary care. I use the emergency department. I use urgent care as my primary care provider. So we really preach and, and, and speak to an experience that needs to be you know 10x better and materially different than what happens today. You can't just simply virtualize some of the existing practice patterns because we don't believe that's going to necessarily be, be enough. You know, virtual first, does not mean it and frankly cannot mean virtual only. That's really, you know, virtual only would be incongruent with what primary care and, and really some of the extensions of primary care are supposed to be. So I guess to sort of wrap that up, I'd say, you know, creating an experience that's that's 10x better than the status quo to really target those who um, are choosing for one reason or the other to not engage with primary care today and doing so that really in, in, in a way that accelerates the integration of our experience and, you know, third party uh, ask to deliver on that hybrid future that I described. As as
1: you just mentioned, virtual first doesn't mean exclusively virtual and there are still many situations that require in person in-person patient care. How are you thinking about the balance between virtual care and and brick and mortar services? And you know, what is what are some of the challenges maybe in coordinating, you know, virtual providers and, and traditional healthcare providers?
2: Our role really is to focus on what's best for the patient, right? Getting them the right care at the right time. Uh, and in doing so in, in really the right place. The underpinning of that, as you alluded to, is, is really being best in class at, at care coordination. We're creating obviously these new pathways that didn't exist before. I use that word frictionless and going between these two environments. The underpinning, the infrastructure for care coordination is, is foundational to that. Um, it's a place that you know, we've invested super heavily in you know, HIE, HIEs and our own proprietary you know, care coordination dashboards to give our care team everything that they need. And you know, I, I, if I could be so bold as to say, I think that we might actually be a believe that we're actually a breath of fresh air for for providers. So you know, when we send a referral and we coordinate a patient over to a specialist, for example, you know, that provider is actually getting more in, information in advance from us than they typically would. Um, we're starting to see higher completion and follow through rates on referrals. We're you know facilitating the referral by scheduling the visit and transmitting the medical record in advance. So know kind of to your question is it a challenge is it is it difficult you know absolutely um but we like these kinds of things it's sort of in our dna i really think it's an opportunity and it's a grounds for for differentiation in, in, in a place where you know some of the the you know the best in class models are going to shine as, as we enter into this hybrid future that i've described
1: Building off of that um teladoc has been in the telehealth space for 20 years and i'm sure you've witnessed <laughs> telehealth uh, and virtual cares ebbs and flows over that time at the company um what do you think are maybe some of the strengths of virtual primary care and some of the weaknesses that we should still be thinking about addressing?
2: Yeah, from the plan perspective, um, what's really exciting to me is, is you know, we're, we're building things that, and we have deployed things that are really hitting on the things that obviously plans really care about. Lower total cost of care through, um, you know, for example, better steerage in network providers, avoidance of those high cost settings. I think back to some of my earlier comments where I said we're targeting those who don't have a primary care relationship, so they're using, you know, emergency departments and urgent care as their PCP. That's one foundational element of these models. The second is um, obviously better management of, of population health, not just earlier detection of chronic disease, which is certainly a pillar of of the models that we're talking about here. But I also think they represent a really unique opportunity from the perspective of reach and scale to Know do those things that plans obviously like to see their partners deliver on closing gaps in care and obviously delivering earlier interventions at the right time, and then I think the the third component from the plan perspective, you know, that makes them really attractive is really compelling is, you know, our ability to integrate these models into carrier assets that enable them to you know create innovative products and increase their their market share, and I'll give you kind of a couple examples of those three things that I just highlighted, you know, on the topic maybe of of better management of population health, and driving down overall cost, you know, we're proving out our hypothesis that targeting those without PCPs drives earlier detection of chronic disease. And then also as it relates to you know, delivering innovative and exciting products, in fact, you know, we're seeing consumers actually select virtual first health plans over options that might be less expensive. But in our research, we're learning that obviously consumers are really drawn to that virtual access and, and the copays and the benefit the design that comes with it. And that sort of dovetails into you know, sort of the strengths and what's the appeal for the consumer. Um, you know, we're focused on cost, convenience, and experience, nothing novel there, but obviously elements of our, our model are certainly novel. If I think about driving you know, a better experience, things that come to mind for me, You know, one of the most significant barriers in primary care, obviously, is just at the outset, that access component, national wait times, 28, 30 days to establish oneself as a patient in a primary care practice. We've cut that down by a fraction. You know, we're guaranteeing five to seven day availability for a new patient visit. You know, where are there opportunities for improvement? What are the weaknesses? I think that there's two key dimensions of that. The first is, as I've, as I've already touched on, you know, when it endeavors to be virtual only, so it's got to create that hybrid environment. Um, and then the second, I think, is, you know, we see some models out there that I think, frankly, are disruptive rather than additive to the existing environment. We've never, uh, at Teladoc Health, never necessarily liked the word disruption. We've always thought as ourselves of, of amplifiers of existing assets. For example, we're not endeavoring to disrupt existing PCP relationships or disrupt existing specialty networks that carriers have built. We actually view our role uh, as as one that integrates into the fabric of those investments and, and better drives, engagement, and, and outcomes in those environments that have been created. So a lot of really exciting opportunities and obviously a lot of opportunities to grow these virtual first models and and deliver on the promise of of what the future holds here.
1: Telehealth's growth um, has been across the board and has included patients of of all different kinds across the spectrum. Um, Are you seeing that there are patient populations that are taking to to virtual primary care more than others? And maybe how can you make the case then to to patients who are a little more hesitant about a virtual first approach? Mm
2: -hmm. Great, great question. And We've seen strong demand for primary 360 really across many market segments, uh, really all the market segments in which we're participating and have seen that there's a a product for really every population when the right balance uh, is struck. As it relates to, you know, those that are, those that are hesitant, I think our our role in reducing the hesitancy comes down to three key components, educating, um, designing the benefit appropriately, and ultimately creating an experience that draws the consumer and other purchasers in. As it relates to education, you know, we're playing an active role in educating um, consumers about the importance of primary care, annual screenings, having a plan for better health. Um, as it relates to the benefit design itself, we obviously are strongly encouraging, you know, zero dollar co pays for not just the virtual component, but the downstream things like referrals when they're accessed on a, on a virtual basis. So, really designing the benefit in a way that makes it attractive to the consumer to break down some of those cost barriers right out of the gate. Uh, And then from the experience perspective, uh, you know, really supporting and empowering them in new and unexpected ways. I talked about, you know, reducing wait times and providing unlimited access to our care team. It's just really uniquely different than the experience that I've had in the past with the care team there being there, you know, to support me and transmitting the medical record and finding the specialist in the network and booking the appointment on on my behalf. It's just something that's uniquely different. and, And that's just one of the many examples in which. Uh, And the ways in which we are delivering an experience that's not just simply virtualizing existing care pathways, but does so in a way that consumers are really going to gravitate towards because uh, it's, it's a uniquely differentiated experience than things they've seen in the past.
1: It is still early days for these plans and many insurers and plan sponsors are testing the water with these options. Where do you see room to potentially keep growing?
2: if i think about the biggest places for for growth i mean obviously there's the headline of of expanding markets and expanding populations we're not in every corner of healthcare yet though i certainly hope that we will be and endeavor to and, and plan to be one day um but if i could be more specific on that i think that there's two that are really right in front of us um the first is expanding the scope of what we do by you know putting more tools and diagnostics in the home using the billions of data points that we have about any given consumer to learn um, more about their individual health and how we better take care of them. So we think a lot about how do we shorten the time and really the number of cycles from the initial need to ultimately that person getting care. And by putting more tools and capabilities in front of them, obviously we can broaden the scope and the attractiveness of of what we do. So that's sort of one dimension. The other dimension is sort of along the, the... you know, the economic and, and the payment models are so thinking about value-based models and, and risk. You know, we certainly anticipated that these would come along in primary care, but been really encouraged by the fact that they've probably come along even faster than we could potentially have anticipated sort of in that in the magnitude and the rate at which we're being asked to engage in these. I think virtual um, virtual care can play a really, really unique role. There's a really unique opportunity for us to differentiate an impact and, and sort of play our part in that future of, of value-based care and, and um, obviously the promise that that holds.
1: Building off of that, as we close, um, I'd like to ask you to just kind of look forward a little bit and, you know, tell us what you think the next evolution of virtual primary care looks like.
2: I think back, for example, when we used to call this telemedicine, right? And we've now evolved to, to virtual care. So I, I dream of a dream. I, I hope for a future where we're no longer calling it even virtual care or virtual first health plans. It will just be you know, my health plan or it will just be care. Um, and I and I believe that that's the future because it will be embedded in every health plan offering. And as we look to the future, I think we're at this interesting inflection point where consumers have shifted from you know, to that end from exploring to now uh, expecting. And that gets to my comments around it will no longer be a virtual first health plan; it will simply be a health plan. And I think that we're on the cusp of that engagement, um, you know, and, and, and that transition. Right now, we've already sort of crossed that threshold, frankly, um, on the on the payer side of that equation, um, you know, I, I do foresee the VBC models and uh, the desire for virtual care to play a really, really active role in value-based care and population health coming on really, really quickly. That's an exciting place for us to continue to differentiate. And I think, you know, to, to put a bow on that, I, I would say that the thing that this is all going to sort of come together around, is, as we were talking about previously, is that the best hybrid model is, is going to win. Nothing can be truly um, physical only or truly virtual only, and the constituents that find a way to stitch those all together in a way that's attractive to the consumer, participating in value-based models and sort of you know, driving that promise of the future for what the consumers, providers, and, and pairs all collectively want. That's really where we see the market going. And that's why, as I said, we're investing really heavily uh, in that hybrid approach in a way that, that really appeals to all of those constituents.
1: Great. Um, Rob, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you.
0: Absolutely. Prescription drug prices in the U.S. are among the highest in the world. In 2018, the Health and Human Services compared U.S. drug prices to 32 other similar countries. The study found that drugs in the United States were between 170% and 779% more expensive than the other countries. That means, in the U.S., We pay up to eight times more for drugs than some other nations. It is no wonder that people are outraged. So we're starting to see more and more efforts to address the drug pricing crisis. And those efforts are getting some attention. One example comes from Mark Cuban, the billionaire entrepreneur. He is launching Cost Plus Drugs, a company to make drugs that are more transparently priced. Time will tell whether the effort can really have a far-reaching impact. Anastasia Gladkovskaya sat down with Dr. Mariana Sokol to talk about ways to make drugs more affordable. Mariana is a physician and Johns Hopkins scientist who has testified before Congress and the FDA on drug pricing and biopharma regulation. Here is Anastasia and Mariana. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Thank you.
3: So when a new drug is being developed, it is typically sold under the brand name first, right? And it's offered patent protection for a period of time. And brand name drugs are typically much more expensive than generic drugs because there is less competition because of the patent. And um, that has led to skyrocketing prices year over year. Um, I'm curious, now that our economy is, is not doing so well, how have you noticed inflation affecting drug prices, whether generics or brand
4: name? Drug prices have been a problem for a long time, both branded drugs and generic drugs. I'm not sure that, it, that our current inflation really would be the most important factor. I would say that our market and the way that our market is structured, our pharmaceutical market in this country that has been really the enabling factor for um, progressive price increases for drugs across the board. So typically, in, in a model that you will see everywhere else in the world, typically the highest price of in the life cycle of a drug will be the price at which the drug is first brought to market. When the years go on, and that drug has been standing in the market, it typically will either face competition or it will face price controls in other countries, and those prices will go down. What we see in the United States, and this has been unfortunately the pattern for many, many years, it's that drugs, after they are brought to market, their prices continue to go up. But our research has shown that drugs that have been in the market for the longest period of time in the U.S., are actually the drugs for which we pay the highest price differentiate, differentials as compared to other countries, because those prices for those drugs have been only increasing here, mm-hmm. where in everywhere else they have been decreasing.
3: I'm curious, like how much of that is attributed to regulation? Is it just uh, that we regulate branded drugs less, and the U.S. government doesn't really intervene in? Uh, drug prices and, and negotiations, um, whereas other countries do, or is it just the nature of a capitalist model where innovation um, can kind of run free?
4: Um, I think it depends on how we look at this comparison. If we look at other countries, it is true that they do have price regulations that we do not have. Um, for example, some countries like the United Kingdom they have health technology assessment. So they look at the value of a drug and how much value that drug brings to the market in addition to everything else that exists at that point in time in the market. And they take that clinical value into consideration when agreeing on a price for the drug. That's a mechanism we don't have here. Other countries like Germany, they review periodically. Japan is another one. We do not have those mechanisms here. We rely so strongly on the entry of these non-branded competitors to bring the price down, that Mm -hmm. it has also been a a factor that some branded products have been extremely successful in fending off this competition. A good example is Humira. It's a drug to treat um, inflammatory conditions like rheumatoid arthritis. And Humira has been in the market since 2002. So for, you know, good 20 years, yet it has not have it doesn't have a biosimilar or generic in the market because it has been so successful in protecting their drug to, through patents, through all sorts of agreements, in, in advertising, and in, in all sorts of different strategies that not, wouldn't necessarily have been successful in other countries.
3: I wanted to turn to that group of middlemen, um, pharmacy benefit managers. And uh, I think they are among the most hated uh, groups in healthcare. We know that just three PBMs control most of the market and um, they have been criticized for being behind the inflating cost of generic drugs. I'm wondering if you can explain a bit about how drug pricing is determined by these middlemen.
4: What I think uh, is, um, is, is a target of hate is their business model. So specifically talking about generic drugs. So the Pharmaceutical Benefit Manager, it, it is an entity that operates on behalf of health insurers in this country. So these PBMs, they really uh, concentrate and they really um, um, participate in most of the pharmaceutical claims that we have in any given day across the nation. These entities, they are in charge not only of negotiating the prices of each individual drug on behalf of that insurer, but they also are in charge of setting up the list of drugs that the insurer will cover. And through setting up that list of drugs that is called the drug formulary, the PBM will use that as a tool to get lower prices. So when it's negotiating, for example, for a branded drug, it will say, okay, I will put your branded drug in a more favorable tier, like a preferred drug name tier, if you give me a higher discount. If you give me a higher discount, I will also exclude other competitors from our formulary. The same thing happens for generics. But the way that that these price negotiations happen is that most frequently, the pharmaceutical benefit manager is also, in addition to having this immense power, they also are allowed to keep a portion of these price concessions that they negotiate. Mm-hmm. If a drug has a transparent and low price, if it already comes through the door at a very cheap level, there's nothing to negotiate. Mm-hmm. Therefore, there's nothing to keep. Right.
3: So helpful to even visualize how this business model works. I think PBMs are so difficult to understand. And if PBMs were eliminated or if we were to think about an alternative model to this, what would be
4: the way to go, you think? So, I think what we need in terms of um, uh, of models is not eliminating PBMs. What we need is a different business model, which is PBMs should be paid for the service they provide they're providing. so um, their clients, which are the insurance companies, the prescription drug plans, etc, their clients should reimburse these companies and pay them for the actual services, not for um, today. Uh, what um an insurer sees, they they see that they can hire that PBM at zero cost, at zero fees, because all of the payment to the PBM will be coming from um rebates and price and discounts that the PBM will negotiate on the insurer behalf.
1: Mm.
3: So you're saying it would be a more transparent model to have PBMs charge a rate for their services as opposed to. Uh, going in with it as if they have a zero, zero dollar rate, and then getting all that money from creating that formulary.
4: Exactly. In our research, we have shown that this is actually the fee based model. When when the PBM is paid by a fee, um, and um, the PBM makes changes to the drugs that go into the formulary because now they don't have an incentive anymore to have these higher priced drugs in there. They can use the cheaper. Uh, options that are from the same drugs and have the same clinical value. Okay, that's interesting. I I haven't heard of uh, that sort of
3: model being proposed where you preserve PBMs in a way, you just flip the way that they make their money.
4: Each year, about 150 new products are brought into the pharmaceutical market in the United States. About 30 to 60 of them are actually new molecular products that didn't even exist before. So, you know, um, it is it is just logical that, um, that at that level of complexity, and you can imagine, for example, we're not even talking about the number of generics or multi-source products that the same product is produced by a dozen or more companies. So you also have to keep, you know, that in mind and negotiate for the same drug with different manufacturers. So um, all that complexity, I think, justifies having an entity, you know, that is dedicated to making these decisions on behalf of all of us mm. and identifying what are the drugs we need and what are the drugs we don't need. Mm-hmm. What we don't want is that, um, is to allow there to be incentives for these entities to get a cut and mm. to opt. You know, I think a great example is a drug called duexis, drug to treat pain and a drug to, to um, protect the stomach. So you take the two. Um, the the two compounds in the same pill. Duexis is a fixed dose combination of these two drugs, ibuprofen, which is the the painkiller, and famotidine, which is the gastric protector, in the same pill. Well, if you were to buy these two drugs independently, uh, over-the-counter, both are over-the-counter actually, they are not only generics, you also can buy them without a prescription on your own. If you were to buy them over-the-counter, you would pay for about a month uh, you would pay around twenty dollars for everything for one month um, treatment. Doxys, the list price is nineteen hundred dollars. Wow! For the same for the same compounds, just in one single pill. The catch there is that Doxys got a patent on that combination that didn't exist before. So now it becomes a patented drug, and by being a patented and branded drug, they can offer rebates to this into these pbms these intermediaries in the in the pharmaceutical market right so now the pbm has a choice either they cover in the formulary the cheap generic versions that are you know price transparent and they don't offer them any price concessions or they include this you know very expensive branded version that is exactly the same molecular mm. uh, drug but in one single pill and it, the difference is that it just gives them gives the pbm the opportunity to make a bit of money on that drug
3: yeah yeah that is a very perverse incentive i see what you're saying
4: and to 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 add on to add insult to injury the fact is that the manufacturer of that drug having so much cash in hand because 1900 dollars list price right they have so much money flowing in that what we that what they can do is give consumers a coupon to make their out of pocket cost zero so the consumer is faced with a decision between do I pay $20 or do I pay $0? I want the $0 deal, right? Mm. So by doing so, what is happening is that the the insurer is now bearing the full cost. And of course, it's going to be a rebated cost because that $1,900 is um, a fabrication price. You know, the actual net price will be lower, but n- not as low as $20, right? Mm-hmm. So... Um, the insurer will be paying the price, the inflated price, and premiums don't, cannot go down because mm-hmm. that, in, that, that increases spending on the insurer's side. The next year, the, the premium will have to accommodate mm-hmm. uh, and, and account for these more expensive drugs
3: that were utilized. Right. So it's just the cycle of increased spending. So I think we can now turn to Mark Cuban. A person who has created a company that is choosing not to work with PBMs, right? Um, Mark Cuban's Cost Plus Drugs is his own drug company. Uh, The billionaire entrepreneur wants to lower prescription drug prices. And um, right now he's offering about 350 generics. He says that he plans to also offer branded drugs down the line. And um, I think a recent study found that Medicare. Could have saved more than $3.5 billion if it had purchased something like 89 drugs at Mark Cuban's rates. I'm curious, like, your thoughts on whether this effort is going to go somewhere and if it's going to have a meaningful impact on drug prices for consumers in the US.
4: So, that's a great question. And I applaud Mark Cuban and other uh, similar companies to, for, um, for their intention and their efforts that they have been putting into bringing disruption to our market. So Mark Cuban came to uh in, in other uh nonprofits is this, uh, have the same um conceptual uh um, model, which is, well, if we can charge a transparent price that actually reflects how much it costs to produce this drug, our prices would be much lower than the generic prices that have been currently available in the market. and that is absolutely true. it is possible. To charge a lower price and um, and to charge a price that is closer to the cost of production for these drugs, for these generic drugs, the real problem here is getting these drugs adopted into formularies, into prescription drug plans, and in pharmacies deciding to carry those drugs, even because these drugs do not offer profits for all of these intermediaries. We didn't talk much about pharmacies, but pharmacies and distributors, wholesalers everybody uh, profits more if it is um, a higher cost drug. So mm-hmm. the challenge for companies like my, Mark Cuban, the big challenge is how to create a market for their drugs um, in, a, in the current scenario, you know, where, mm-hmm. um, where all our intermediaries are looking for higher prices to make a profit off.
3: Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, uh, his company right now is cash only, right? He's not working with, Insurance companies at the moment,
4: yes, so we had that model already in the past with Walmart, for example, or Costco, right? A person would go to Walmart and there was a list of four dollar generics or nine dollar generics, so that model already existed. Uh, the difference is that Walmart contracted with the manufacturers to sell those products at a cheaper price Man- Walmart was not manufacturing these drugs, and Mark Cuban and others they are in uh, they, they are um Setting up manufacturing plants in which they will actually produce the drugs, but that model already existed. And I think the the longevity of Walmart's model or Costco, for that matter, it just shows how our system has been broken for a long time. You know, such that Walmart could offer the same generic for like four or five dollars, and you know, still make a profit off that.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting that he's. He's going to manufacture his own drugs, but he's also partnering with existing manufacturers. Do you think that that's maybe a better way to approach it, to partner with existing folks and whatever they can't get from those you try to produce on your own?
4: Exactly. I, I think that makes sense. And um, I would also add that, you know, that's a question that I get often asked by my students, for example, is, well, what what would incentivize a manufacturer of a generic drug to sell to Walmart, for example, or sell to Mark Cuban, you know, um, for that lower price. The truth is that the PBM is already negotiating a lower price with those manufacturers. It's just the catch is that the PBM is pocketing a lot of the difference. But in net numbers, manufacturers are already making um, lower net revenue
3: on these products. Hopefully, we are on to better things with, innovative new companies. So there is a positive change that happens and we can all afford our healthcare in peace. I would also hope so. Well, thank you so much, Mariana. I appreciate your time today. Thank you.
0: That was Anastasia Gladkovska and Mariana Sopo. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Corita Anderson, our producer is Teresa Carey, and our sound engineer is Caleb Hodgson. You can find more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. Next week, we'll talk about the coming wave of biosimilars and how rural America can get better access to healthcare. So tune in Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat.